This morning, we are continuing our sermon series. How many of us have memorized? Well, well, you see it right behind you. Yes, Lord, I have sinned, but I have several excellent excuses. The title of this morning's sermon is the sin of spiritual, the sin of spiritual arrogance. Today's teaching is about determining whether you want to be a follower of Jesus or if you simply just want to sit on the sidelines like a fan and cheer Jesus on but not really take seriously his teachings. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to open to Luke 10. This morning, this is what I want to do. There are three stories that I want to look at in Scripture. The first one is the one we're going to spend most of our time, and then the last two we're going to go quickly through to kind of help us bring all of this together. So Luke chapter 10, verse 25. It's a story we know well. It's actually a story that even people who don't read the Bible or people who aren't Christians, they use the term the good what? The good, yeah. Everybody knows that a good Samaritan is someone who goes out of their way to help those that are in need. So Christianity and non-Christians alike, we know and we understand that people who go out of their way to help others in need are called good Samaritans. So this morning we're going to look at where that comes from, that saying. So we're going to start with Luke 10, verse 25. Just then a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. And I want to pause there for a moment. And when we look at this in, in Scripture, a lawyer here isn't like the lawyer we would find today in a courtroom. But rather when you see in the New Testament of a lawyer, it's actually a religious scholar, someone who knows the law of God well. So in other words, this lawyer was simply a man who understood, who knew the first five books of the Bible so well that he was, in fact, a religious um, scholar. He was an expert. He knew the 613 laws in the books of Moses or the law of Moses, and so he knew them well. So he was one of the guys that if you had a question about how you keep this or how you keep that command or that law, you would go to this man and he would tell you basically How do you understand the law, and how do you keep the law? So we find the setting of the story, a religious scholar, a guy who knows the Bible, a guy who probably knows it better than everyone else. He comes up to Jesus, and it says that he comes up and he tests Jesus. Now, that's never a good introduction to a story. It's conflict right at the beginning. He had an agenda, He was asking this question because he wanted to mess Jesus up. He wanted to stump Jesus. He wanted Jesus to say something that would challenge his credibility. So this religious scholar, this as we would call a lawyer then, stands up to test Jesus, and this is what he asks him. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, he calls him teacher, but you got to understand that a religious scholar wouldn't have accepted Jesus as a rabbi or a teacher. In the first century, um, for religious people in the first century, which were good Jews, um, their entire faith was built upon the 613 laws of the book of Moses and some of the prophets and some of the wisdom, some of the wisdom writings. And they were all waiting for the Messiah. So when Jesus comes onto the scene... They don't really see Jesus as a Messiah. They actually thought Jesus was a heretic. They thought he was some crazy man. And so this lawyer kind of comes up to Jesus in a mocking tone. He says, teacher, because he doesn't really think of Jesus as a teacher or a rabbi. He thinks of him more as a heretic. And he asks this question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you know that this question is the wrong question 
to ask because he asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And the truth is, is there anything that you and I can really do to inherit eternal life? No, it's what is done for us on behalf of Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross. So already this is the wrong question to ask. But Jesus, being the kind and loving and compassionate and extremely smart and witty person, um, this is how Jesus responds. He said, he said to him, what's written in the law? What do you read there? Now, Jesus' way of conversation is if you read the Gospels, the first four books of the New Testament, you'll find that Jesus often answers a question with what? A direct answer? No, he always either asks a question or he tells a story. Like, that would bug me, right? Like, I would hate that. I was like, just give me the answer that I want, Jesus. But that's how he does it. But he does it on purpose because he's a conversational genius, and he happens to be God in the flesh. So he asks him, what do you read there? What is written there? And so here's the answer. So the lawyer answered him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. He was quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 6. It says that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, And then it says, keep these words that I, God, am commanding you today in your heart. Recite them to your children. Talk about them when you are at home and when you are away, when you lie down and when you rise. Bind them as a sign on your hand. Fix them as an emblem on your forehead and write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. When the lawyer answers him, he answers the right question. This is what was called the Shema. It was a prayer that, was, that parents were supposed to teach their children, and it was so important. It was supposed to, um, to guide your life, to shape the way you understand the world. And so it says, love the Lord your God with what? Everything. Every part of your being you must love God with. So the lawyer responds with the right answer. It's something that they had all memorized. Every Jewish person in the first century and probably today have memorized this from a very young age. And so what does Jesus say? You have given the right answer. Do this and you will live. So that's the end of the story, right? You know what you're supposed to do. So Jesus says, okay, do it. How many of you have ever been in a, in a conversation that can get heated from one moment to the next, so you just kind of leave it at that? How many of us have ever been there? I have a sense that Jesus was like, look, there's no point in arguing with this guy about religion, belie- religious beliefs or faith because he's not going to accept whatever I tell him. You have ever been in, a, in an argument over doctrine or over a point of faith, and at the end, you convince the other person. Does that ever happen to any of you? I'm still waiting for that day. <laughs> I think I've told this story before, but when I was... 18, 19, 20, a long time ago, I used to argue with everybody that was an Adventist about how right we were and how wrong they were. And I had all of my points down. I mean, I was good. I had all the Bible passages to prove it. I showed them. I was trying to teach them out of love. Not really, but I was just, I was just trying to prove to them that the Seventh-day Adventist church is the church that has all of the truth and everybody needed to be a part of this church. What I found is that when I did that, I alienated people. Not only did I alienate them, but I I made them feel like, man, if that's what your church is like, filled with people like you, I really don't want to have anything to do with them. 
this last week, I was, I was at Loma Linda University Dental School, and I was a part of a panel on a, in a religion class, and it was a world religions class, and the day that I went was supposed to be the day where Christian pastors gave their viewpoint on all sorts of different things. It was just a fun thing to do. So there were, there were four of us there representing different Christian denominations. And one of the girls raised her hands at the end when there was time for questioning. And she says, um, what do you do with churches who say that their church is the only church, the one true church? What do we do with that? Now, she's asking a panel of Christian pastors who probably at some point in their lives probably said those kind of words or alluded to that at churches. Um, and, and I responded to, um, to the fact that I was like that once until I realized that the God that I believed in was a God that was much, much bigger than the Adventist church or than Calvary Chapel or than a, a Lutheran church. That the God I believe in is a God of everyone, always, all the time. And the, and the reasoning for that is before I am an Adventist, before I am a Christian, I am what? I'm a human being. I am a son of God. So before I label myself any of these other things, before all of that, the only label that matters is that I am made in the image of the Most High God, and I am a son of God. So I told her, if those are the kind, I mean, some people will say those kinds of things, and I told her, and I, and I would think that they would be categorically incorrect to say those things, because as long as a church has Jesus and preaches Jesus, Jesus calls himself the truth, and that's good enough for me. So Jesus tries to end what's about to become a, a heated discussion by trying to say, you've given the right answer, do this and you will live. But notice that Jesus doesn't say, do this and you will inherit eternal life. Instead, Jesus says, just do this and you will live. I would argue that Jesus is trying to simply state to this man that if you do these things that are in the law, you are going to live, and you're probably going to have a great life. If you follow everything the Bible says um, for, for this man, um, you're, you're going to be okay. You'll live a life. It'll probably be a life of joy and of happiness, and you'll probably stay out of trouble. That wasn't the question that the man asked him. So the man continues and he says, wanting to justify himself, the neighbor, I mean, the, the lawyer, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now, how many of you have ever been in class, elementary, junior high, high school, even college, where you had one student raise his or her hand and ask a question, but at the same time answer the question? Like, they ask a question, and then they say, is it true that, and then they try to answer the question, nobody likes those students. Amen. No, because you're there to learn from the teacher, not from the other students. This, this lawyer was trying to justify himself in the sense that he was wanting Jesus to say, well, good Jewish lawyer, religious scholar, your neighbor, or anyone who is a part of the house of Israel. Which in the first century would mean if you are a Jew, if you are an Israelite, if you are a part of this house of God, this chosen people, those are your neighbors. Love them well. And I have a sense that what the lawyer was trying to get at was that, but everyone else that isn't a part of this group of yours, you don't really have to worry about loving. There was an ancient wisdom text in the, Jewish, in the, in the Israelite and Jewish world that says that you were not supposed to help a sinner. So it was okay for you not to help a sinner, but for them, a sinner was anybody that was outside of their faith. 
So in essence, if they weren't a part of the church, of their church, everyone outside of that church was a sinner, and this wisdom text would tell them, hey, you don't have to help them if they're in need because they're not a part of the family of God. So you're okay by not helping them. That's what he was trying to get Jesus to tell him. But Jesus doesn't answer him the way he wants, and this is how Jesus replied. A man who was going from Jerusalem to Jericho fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now the road from Jerusalem to Jericho was 17 miles. There was a place in that road that was called the Way of Blood. So this road was notorious for getting beaten, for getting mugged. So it was a kind of place you don't go. And we've all had a place like that, right? Yeah, we, yeah there, was a, there, was a, there was a walk from, my, from school to my house that I had to walk almost every day in high school. So I know exactly what this is like. And then there was one part where you could go straight through it, which would be the fastest way, or you could go around it, which in my mind seemed a lot safer. So I know what this is like. This, there was a bridge that you had to go under in Fullerton where I actually got mugged once, okay? So that's why I tell my kids, it's okay if you get mugged because at least you're still here to live. Because <laughs> um, I tell them they need to start walking home. It's a whole other story. But I know what that's like. I didn't get beaten up, thankfully. But I can kind of see that when you're going from one place to the other and it's a dangerous place, you want to just go quickly. So this was a 17-mile stretch, and there was a place, a specific place, that was called the Way of Blood. And the story tells us that there was a man who was beaten, robbed, and left for dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road. When he saw him, the man that was left for dead, he passed by on the other side. Now, let me ask you guys this question. The priest, which might be our modern-day pastor, aren't they supposed to be the good guys? Aren't they supposed to be the ones that do all of the right things all of the time? They're the ones that we tend to look to, and, and in essence, we expect a higher standard of living from them, right? You can say yes. We shouldn't, <laughs> but we do. Yeah, so this is the priest who's supposed to be the good guy. He's supposed to be, as one of our church members says, he was supposed to be one of the all-stars. This was the guy that you were supposed to look to, and you were supposed to, in some ways, emulate him because he was spending his life dedicated to serving God and serving others. But what the passage tells us is that when he saw him, he passed on the other side. He didn't even, like, see if he was okay. I think we do this too, though. You know, those times when um, we're walking into the grocery store and there's somebody asking for money, what do we do? We reach into our pockets and pretend like we're on the phone. Or maybe we exit the freeway and there's somebody there, so we pretend like we're changing the station on the stereo. doesn't even have to be homeless people. How many of you have ever been in the grocery store and you see another church member and you're just like looking the other way like you didn't even see them? Because there's a little bit of the priest in all of us. This priest had a good reason, though, for not helping. You see, a priest in this, in the first century, if you touched blood or if you touched somebody who was dead and he thought this guy was dead, then the priest would become unclean. Now, a priest couldn't minister in the temple or in the synagogue if he was unclean. There was all sorts of things that if you became unclean, then you had to do these spiritual cleansings and washings, and then you would be unclean until a certain point in the day. And so it was just a big hassle. And the priest, if he was going to minister in the temple, he couldn't become unclean because then he couldn't do what he was called to do, which was minister to God's people, right? 
except that he was coming from Jerusalem to Jericho, which meant that he had already been at the temple. You see, if the story was that the priest was going from Jericho to Jerusalem, then he, you know, then maybe he could have had a reason not to help. But instead, it seemed that he was all, he had already finished. It was like Sabbath was done. He had already preached his sermon. He had already ministered to the people. And perhaps now he was going home. In essence, he let his faith and his religious beliefs get in the way of helping somebody who was in dire need. Let me, let me repeat that. He allowed his beliefs and his religious faith to get in the way of helping somebody who was about to die. Have you ever heard people say, I want nothing to do with religion, or I can't stand churches, like Jesus is fine, but the church, I can't stand it. Or people will say, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. It's because for far too long, too many people have acted like this priest who, have, who has said their religious beliefs, who has championed his beliefs, who has said that my church is the best church and I'm doing everything I can for God because my church is the best and we are the church. And yet they turn on the other side of the street from not helping the people who are in need. This priest allowed his religious beliefs to get in the way of helping someone in need. There is a problem with that. If your religious beliefs get in the way of you helping someone in need, then maybe it's time to re or to question what those beliefs actually are. This priest didn't pass the test of what it meant to be a follower of Jesus. In essence, he didn't practice what he preached. He was supposed to be the example, but he fell short. Next so likewise, the next person, a Levite, when he came to the place, saw him and passed by on the other side as well. Now, a Levite to us, it's like, whoa, that doesn't make any sense. Think of a Levite perhaps as a deacon in the church. Levites was from the family of Levite. They were part of the people who helped and who ran the synagogues and the temples from the time that the Israelites came out of Egypt until, until this first century. So this was a temple worker who was who was a deacon, who was opening the doors, who was filling up tithe envelopes, who was filling up the baptistry. It was a kind of person that was cleans the patio and makes sure that everything is working. And if something's broken, they fix it. I mean, these were also, as somebody calls them, all-stars. These were the guys that you turned to when you needed something. If you need help moving, if somebody needs food, also deaconesses, deacons and deaconesses. Let's think of that alike. But this is a man, of course, in the story. And so this man also, like the priest, walks on the other side of the road. This man also, coming from the temple, he obviously, it didn't sink in what they had been studying and reading in their church. He listened to it. He liked it. He was a vibrant part of the community. But when it counted and when it mattered, he didn't fulfill what God had placed on their hearts. So we have a priest. We have a Levite, holy people, righteous people. And they didn't do what was the right thing. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him. And when he saw him, he was moved with pity. Now, in 2001, the Good Samaritan, when we say, oh, that person was a Good Samaritan, all we think about is, man, that person did something. that They went way out of their way to help someone else. In the first century, Jewish people wouldn't even say Samaritan. They had, they had other words for them. There was one saying that the only good Samaritan is a dead Samaritan. 
they would call them half-breeds or heathen dogs because they were half-Jewish and half-something else. So they were the outcasts. They were the people that nobody really wanted to kind of hang out with. They were the people that you didn't want to be friends with because if you were friends with them, then, you, then by implication and by, by just being friends with them, then they would think that you were a sympathizer. And so we're not going to, you know, we don't want to hang out with people who sympathize with these group of heathen dogs because they're sinful, because they're just horrible. They're the worst of society. That was the first century. People would spit on them. Like, you, if you were Jewish, you could spit on them, and you wouldn't get in trouble for that because they were, after all, just heathen dogs. How many of you have ever gotten so mad at your dog that you just want to, like, you know, kick them a little bit? I know we don't do that because it's, you know, PETA and all that other stuff, right? But in the first century, that was okay. So it was like they just treated these people horribly because they saw them as sinners. Who they were made them more of a sinner than everybody else. They were outcasts. They were different. They weren't a part of the family of God. But the story says that while a Samaritan, was, while traveling, came near, saw him, and was moved with pity. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. Then he put them on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him, and when I come back, I will repay whatever more you spend. Now, they didn't carry first aid kits. Okay, not only was this man, he wasn't just going from Jerusalem to Jericho just because in Jericho is where he lived, but it says while he was traveling. So we don't know how far he was coming from. We don't know where he was going. We don't know when he was going to come back. Not only did he probably not carry a first aid kit, it meant that he would have had to make a bandage out of something. Now, if you're not carrying a first aid kit and you're in the desert and there's no leaves to wrap around this person, what do you do? You tear your own clothes to make a bandage for this man. And it says like he was left half dead, so who knows how many bandages this man would have needed. He takes him somewhere to get help, to get treated, and then he says, I will pay whatever more you spend on this man. Samaritans were bad. They were sinners in the first century. Nobody liked them. They weren't supposed to do this. This was unexpected. This story would have been extremely offensive in the first century. And now Jesus says, which one of these do you think was a good neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? Right? Jesus now asks a question. And the man replied, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. Do you notice that this lawyer didn't even say, well, the Samaritan? What did he say? The one who showed him mercy. He hated them so much that he couldn't even bring himself to say that the man was a Samaritan. The lawyer knew the Bible. The lawyer understood everything the Bible said. He even taught about it. He even made corrections about what people thought about the Bible. The lawyer was like one of our theologians who knows everything there is to know, but the problem was that he wasn't actually living out what the scriptures were teaching him to live. Now, I know it's hard for us to take all of what the Bible says and then implement it in our lives and live it out. I know that's difficult. It's difficult for all of us. But this man thought that he was doing what was right, and he was even trying to test Jesus. He was trying to get Jesus to say something that Jesus would regret, or to get Jesus to say something that then they could attack Jesus for and say, you see, this guy is not a real teacher of the law. But instead, Jesus has this conversational way of teaching people that what they thought was right wasn't actually correct. 
The reason people didn't like Jesus is because they couldn't argue against him. He started to, to, to in some ways, change the way they understood the world, and he was, in, he was challenging them to live an even better way. But you see, everybody was already following the 613 laws, so why would they have to all of a sudden start changing everything? And yet Jesus says he comes because they were doing the things they weren't supposed to. They were just talking about Jesus and praising Jesus with their, or rather God with their lips, but they weren't actually living out what the scriptures were saying. What we find here is the man asks, who is my neighbor? That was the first question. Jesus, who is my neighbor? And Jesus turns the entire conversation around, and he, Jesus is the one that says, now who was the good neighbor to that man? The Samaritan was. And so Jesus says, then be like the Samaritan. Jesus was, in essence, telling him, go and be like the guy that you hate because that guy understands what it means to love God with all your heart, mind, and soul. So the question we would ask this morning is, can a Samaritan love God? According to this story, the answer is what? Yeah. Are there groups in our society today that are treated much like the Samaritans? that we keep them at an arm's length and we say, you know, we say this, God hates the sin but loves the sinner. But in the first century, if it was a sin to be a Samaritan and you were to say God hates the sin, what makes you a Samaritan, but he loves the sinner, that w- that's like a backhanded compliment. It's almost like an insult because we are all sinners. God loves us because he's able to look beyond the sin and the mire and the muck in your life. Could that be true for everyone else? You see, this was a story about how the lawyer thought that only this group of God, the family of God, was good. They were saved. They were the in-group. They were assured of this eternal life. But what Jesus says is, no, it's not just you. It's for everyone else as well. If Jesus is the one who gives the gift of salvation, then Jesus has the right to give the gift to anyone he chooses, regardless of what we think. Jesus says, I have sheep that are not of this fold, which was a clear indication that the gospel wasn't just for the Jewish people, but it was for the entire world. In our society, are there people that we exclude and keep at a distance because they have a different lifestyle than us to which i would add is their sin are their sins greater than ours are their sins greater than ours let me show you another story two men went up to the temple to pray one a pharisee and the other a tax collector the pharisee and a pharisee was a religious person a very devout religious pious person someone who went to church every Sabbath, who gave alms, who paid his tithe, who did everything right. They were supposed to have tassels at the bottom of their garments that showed that that was sacred space because God was in the midst of that. So they were like the best religious people. So this is the story, a religious person and a tax collector. A tax collector, everybody, well, we still hate the tax collector. (laughs) Um, But back then, but back then it was even worse because let me just share this with you for those of you who don't know. A tax collector in the first century, let's say I would, I'm a tax collector, Vicky's a tax collector, and Daniel's a tax collector. And let's say Jeremiah is the emperor of the area. So all three of us would go up to Jeremiah and say, look, Jeremiah, um, long live the king or whatever. Um, I can get you 
$10,000 for this region in taxes. And Jeremiah was like, well, I only need five. And I would say, yeah, but I'll get you 10. So Jeremiah's like, okay, well, good deal. Then Daniel comes along and says, well, I can get you $15,000 or denarii. And then Vicky comes and says, well, I can do better. I'll get you 25000 So then all of a sudden, Jeremiah's like, well, I'm obviously going to go with the one who can get me more. The problem is that then Vicky would have to go to all of her people, okay? These are Jewish people going to Jewish people, demanding them not only just to pay what was the actual tax, but demanding more and more. And if they couldn't, then they would take their land or they would take their stuff, all sorts of stuff. So that's why people hated tax collectors, because they were exploiting their own people. So a Pharisee, a religious person, much like a good, I guess, Christian would be, and a tax collector, a horrible person, maybe someone that we would say are, you know, the worst of society, right? So this is the story that Jesus is saying. There's a good, and then there's a bad. So a Pharisee and a tax collector collector go up to the temple to pray. The Pharisee standing by himself was praying thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, thieves, rogues, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all my income. But the, yeah, and I, yeah, okay. So that's the case for himself a lot. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even look up to heaven, but was beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his home justified rather than the other. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all who humble themselves will be exalted. The Pharisee thought that he had it all. He thought that he was a part of the in-group. He thought that he was the good religious person. And yet what we actually find is that it is really the tax collector who truly understands that God is the only one who gives mercy, and his prayer shows that he understands what it means to be religious. Because his prayer is a prayer asking for forgiveness. This is a sermon and a teaching about how those of us who think we have it all together, who have all the right teachings and all the right understandings, and we think we're a part of the in-group, this is a teaching for us to remember that the gospel is not just for us. It's for everyone always. And then there's a final little story that I just want to share. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we tried to stop him because he was not following us. One of the other passage, one of the other Bible translations says, We try to stop him because he was not one of us. But Jesus says, Do not stop him, for no one who does deeds of power in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. Whoever is not against us is for us. This is another story of the people who thought that they were in the in-group weren't just the only ones that God cares for. Listen, this man was casting out demons in the Lord's name. That's a good thing, right? If you're doing ministry and serving others because in, the name, in the name of the Lord, that's good. But these disciples thought that they were the only ones that had the truth, that they were the only ones that could do this, that they were the only good religious people. And so they stopped this man ministering from doing good for others because he wasn't one of them. This is a very pertinent message in our time. Because if we're honest with ourselves, there are all sorts of groups of people that we exclude from being true and genuine followers of Christ because they have this sin or because they go to church on this day 
or because they don't say the right prayers or have the right doctrinal beliefs. But the truth is that Jesus says, I have fold that are not of this. There, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. This is a reminder and a call that just because people are different, that just because they have a different understanding of the world, that just because they identify themselves as different than us, I would even go as far as saying this, and I don't mean this to be in any kind of negative way, okay? I would say that one of the one of the big issues that we have that I think this church is trying to reach out and grace is sometimes even this homosexual community. We feel vindicated and justified by saying if that's their sin, that's a little bit worse than my sin. But the truth is, is that if you've broken one sin, the Bible says you've broken all of them. And so if you're one of those people that has that problem with them, and I don't know if you are, just remember that your sin is no smaller than theirs, or their sin isn't bigger than yours. The question we keep coming back to is, can they love Christ? Can an alcoholic love Christ? Can a drug addict love Christ? Can somebody who cheats on their taxes love Christ? Can somebody who doesn't always pay all of their tithe love Christ? Does somebody who's prideful, can they love Christ? Does someone who lie, can they love Christ? We leave judgment up to God and God alone. Our only job is to love others just like the Samaritan loved. Perhaps it was a Jewish person who was on the floor. The person who hated him, betrayed him, kicked him. Jesus' story of the Good Samaritan isn't just about doing, as they call, random acts of kindness. That's not what that is. The story of the Good Samaritan is Jesus flipping the script and saying all the people that you've excommunicated and kept at an arm's distance, those people know what it means to truly be a follower of who I am. Be like they are to others. I would even say, I would even say that our church has experienced grace from a Samaritan-like people. The, homele- uh, the homeless ministry that we have. Can I share this story? because we're not hiding anything. The homeless ministry that we have, the second Sabbath of every month, um, it, started when, it started when we were reading the book, Experiencing God. And, and it was a question of where is God at work and how do we become a part of it? This might make some of you uncomfortable and, and we can talk with the elders and with you and we'd be glad to sit with you. Um, but so one of our elders, Bob, um, who, who we put in charge of, hey, go help us to reach out into the community along with Kurt Abbey, um, Bob read an article that said that there's a church who's feeding the homeless once a, once a month on a Sunday. So Bob says, hey, let's try and do this. Let's go and see. And the way Bob tells the story is he goes, they invite him to board meeting to see if this is something that they would allow us to do. Now this church, by the way, something particular about them, when they heard that Bob was an Adventist and that a Seventh-day Adventist church wanted to come and help them, they were very weary of us. They wanted to keep us at an arm's length away because they had heard stuff about us Seventh-day Adventists, right? Some people think we're crazy in a cult and all sorts of other crazy things, right? So they were kind of like, you know, but they said, okay, let's extend some grace and let's just talk to this guy, Bob, all right? And so Bob goes there, he talks to them, he says, hey, we would love to be able to do this once a month, can we just come and learn, let's see if we can do this, and they said, sure, fine, come, you know. So about, was it two or three weeks later after that meeting, um, we go, and then something happened. Well, some of us already knew this, but when Bob comes to the board to get approval for this, he says, now there's only one thing we need to, we need to you know, talk about. 
I can't remember word for word, so I'm setting up the story. <laughs> they have a cultural difference than us. Okay, what, they go to church on Sunday, whatever. It's like, it's a church full of homosexuals. So the board wrestled with this. The board talked about this, our church board here. And in prayer, we decided, well, um, are we going to let that get in the way of actually feeding people who are hungry and in need and naked and poor? And so we went with fear and trembling a little bit because we didn't know, right? Because they're the Samaritans that we have to keep at an arm's distance. They gave us a key to their church, and they let us use all of their supplies in order to be able to feed the, the homeless. It means barbecues, easy-ups, tables, tents, their kitchen, their bathrooms. I mean, everything they had, they said, here. They extended an arm of grace to us, and they didn't have to. The first day that we got there, um, there was another group of people, and on their shirts it says, the gay friends and neighbor of Santa Ana. They weren't a part of the church, but they helped the church. And we went there, and I was talking to them, and they kept us at an arm's length. It wasn't just that we were Christians who ostracized them. It's that we were Seventh-day Adventists, which means that we were even, like, more conservative. (laughs) Some of you say worse. I don't want to say that word. (laughs) Arm's length. And I started talking to some of them, and I tried to tell them, no, 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 you know, we're, we're not all like that. We're not damning you guys to hell. That's not the message that we preach. That's not what the Bible tells us that you guys are going to go to hell. I'm like, I'm a sinner too. And if I opened up to you about my sins, you might judge me. I mean, I don't know, right? But that's, you know, maybe it's not something they wrestle with. And, and that first day that I was there that we were actually, this is the day when we learned how to do this. They told me stories of pain of how they had been ridiculed about how they had been ostracized and judged by Christians. And I said to them, that's not the kind of God that we believe in. The God that we believe in is the God that if he forgives my sin, he forgives everybody's sin. We thought that we were being graceful towards them, but they were doing the same exact thing towards us. And you know, the funny thing is that we have one thing in common, and that's Jesus. And as long as you have Christ, I don't know, I mean, the Bible says that we become brother and sister when we are in Christ. Now, we can have our theological differences we can have our own personal opinions i get all of that i share with you this story not to say that oh, okay it's fine to do whatever you want and I, what i'm saying is jesus is calling us to include as many people as possible into his kingdom because as long as we let lord be the lord of our lives the kingdom of god is present and god is happy when we work together how everything else works out that's god's way Judgment and all of that is in God's hands. All we are called to do is to give witness and to testify to God's goodness and glory and his mighty hand of power in this world. That's all God asks us to do, and we'll leave the rest in God's hands. This morning, as I finish with this, the sermon title is A Sin of Spiritual Arrogance. If we're not careful, we can allow our religion, our religious beliefs, our theology All of that can get in the way of doing what God is actually calling us to do. So it's not just about having the right answers and knowing what the Bible says, but it's about taking all of that and living it out in such a way that we are like Christ to everyone in the world, to the Samaritan and to the Christian alike, to those we disagree with. We must love them no matter what. Because Jesus loves you in spite of all of the horrible things you've done. God loves you even when you did that thing that you were ashamed to. God loved you 
even when you said that lie. God loved you even when you did that thing that if the person sitting next to you knew would look at you differently. And God doesn't view you differently. And this is the God that we believe in, that has forgiven us, and it is the God that we must give witness and testify to. Evangelism is when we point to that God and tell others, because he's done that to me, we want to do all of this for you. Let us pray. God, we, we come before you always in fear and trembling because we stand and we sit here every Sabbath and we teach from your word and we try to get it as right and as close to the truth as possible as you would have it. And then we run the danger of leaving this place, Lord, not allowing it to change the way we live our lives. God, this morning is one of those difficult teachings where we would rather not love the people that aren't like us because sometimes it's hard. But God, we pray that we would be faithful to you and that we would be faithful to you in every aspect of everything that we do. And so God, change us, shape us, mold us so that we would be ambassadors of peace, of grace, and of love in this world with so much hurt. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.